Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. If you're not familiar uh, with who I am, my name is Joel. Uh, Hey, Tran. Um, I've kind of spent some time in Glenelg, and when Port Adelaide planted last year, I've been a part of that. And so uh, it's good to be here from Port Adelaide. Uh, It's been a while since being here in North Adelaide, so it's just... Uh, great to see you guys again, and also new faces. Um, yeah, it's really good to be here. Uh, so the why, though, I see you've got that up. Glenelg didn't have that when I prayed, uh, when I uh, preached there, so that's pretty cool. Um, why, though? <laughs> um, and uh, tonight's why, though, is on prayer. Basically, why do we pray? Um, but before then, it's always good to begin a sermon on prayer by praying, practice what you preach. So uh, uh, let's just have a moment of prayer together. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would... Um, oh, Lord, we know that you are here by your Spirit. And I uh, just ask that uh, at the end of our service together, uh, coming together as your people, that uh, we will have experienced uh, life change and uh, we will go away with uh, not only knowledge, um, but also perhaps insight that is uh, not from me and uh, perhaps not from each other, but is purely from you. Um, and so God, I ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. So uh, really the main question is, why do we pray? And uh, really, your struggle might be the same as mine. You may think that you can get by in life without it, uh, particularly when you're surrounded by good Christian community. Um, you know, good Christian friends and Christian leaders and whatnot. Uh, you've got a good community, and if you need help with your life, perhaps you'll just go and ask your friends or your leaders and pastors. You think, well, I know prayer is good, but I, I get by pretty okay without it. Um, and I was thinking about this today. It's kind of like, um, uh, so being healthy. Right? So for me, I don't mind going to the gym. But, you know, I always hear, well, if you really want to be healthy, you better eat healthy. Otherwise, like, you're just working out and it just does nothing. And I go, all right, yeah, sure. I know in theory that uh, perhaps if I ate more healthy, uh, it would go well with uh, the, the gym. But uh, I know that in theory, I'd prefer to just work out. Eating healthy, that sounds way too hard. And it's a little bit like this with the church. You go, I can rock up to church. I'm used to that. Um, and I know in theory that prayer would really be good for me. Um, but I can get by without it. I'm I'm healthy enough without it. And perhaps it's because you don't really hear anything from God uh, when you pray. It's not like he speaks out his voice to you and you can hear it. You can't see him. And wouldn't prayer be so much easier if you could see or hear God? You could pick up a phone or you could FaceTime him and just see him right there and you can just say, all right, God, what am I doing today? Uh, just tell me, and I'll, I'll get on with it. And sometimes uh, in the Bible, the stories are like that. Um, 
But for me, I actually don't find that very encouraging um, because that's not the reality that you and I live in. We don't casually dialogue with God the same way Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses. They dialogued with God. They heard his voice. And so uh, in looking for an appropriate story for us, uh, I wanted to take that into account. So the story we're looking at today is, uh, teaches us about prayer to a God we cannot see. Um, and a God who isn't necessarily speaking back to us with his audible voice. Again, there's many instances in Scripture where this happens. But that's not the type, when we think of prayer, that's not the type of prayer we're involved in. And so we need a story from Scripture which helps us uh, in our real life situation. We, we need to learn what is involved with this type of prayer and what does this shed on our Christian life today. Uh, I, must, I must warn you that uh, there might be points throughout this sermon that you'll be thinking to yourself, um, I thought that we were supposed to be talking about prayer. Uh, and the truth is, though, that um, we're not talking about the when to pray or the how to pray, or the what to pray. We're looking at the why, why to pray. And what makes prayer so interesting to me is not necessarily the, the act of praying itself, um, but it's all the things that surround prayer as an act. Uh, that is what's interesting, and that's what we'll be looking at today. Uh, the story is... In some ways, it's about as down-to-earth and practical as, as we can get. Uh, it's about a man uh, looking for and praying about a wife. Um, and the side note for that is he's, he's not praying for a wife for himself, but for his master's son. So, Genesis 24, uh, and we'll be going from verse 1. Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household, who managed all he owned, place your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family to take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land you came from? Abraham answered him, Make sure that you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your offspring. He will send his angel before you, and you can take a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me, but don't let my son go back there. So the servant placed his hand under his master Abraham's thigh and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. 
Now, it is, uh, it is imperative for us to come and understand Abraham and his story if we're going to understand uh, this story that's in front of us. And so who is Abraham? Genesis begins with God creating an earth that eventually falls into sin under the guidance of Adam and Eve. But God promises to them, uh, I'm still going to bless this world somehow despite your sin. And so unfortunately, if you're familiar with the story, uh, the rest of humanity uh, follows in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, continuing to degrade itself to the point where God destroys humanity with a global flood except for Noah's family of eight. But then we find out that Noah's family are just as sinful as anyone else. There's nothing particularly special about them that sets them apart. God just set them apart. And God basically says again, uh, I am still going to bless this world somehow despite the sin of this world. Not long after the story of Noah, we meet Abraham. And God says to him, uh, you, you're the, you're the somehow. Uh, you are my somehow. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham, that blesses the world despite the world's sin. And it's going to happen through your family. But I'm, I'm formally starting this covenant with you. I'm swearing this oath to you, Abraham. And so this, uh, this story of Abraham, it reveals to us what's at stake with our story in Genesis 24. Because the question is, well, well what's the deal with this bride for Isaac? You know, why does Isaac need a bride here? If you look at Genesis 24, it's huge. It's like almost 70 verses, and it's all about this question. But now it's obvious when we look at Abraham and we look at the promise of the offspring. God swore to Abraham that he would bless the world through his family tree. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and God said that the blessing would be through Isaac. And this is why Isaac needs a bride. In the previous chapter, Abraham's wife and Isaac's mum, Sarah, she's died. And so Abraham is also old, and Isaac is about 40 at this time. And as far as Abraham is concerned, he's really just got two things to do. He's got two things to do before he dies, two things to put into motion. He's got to find Isaac a bride, and then he's just got to encourage some baby-making. According to the promises of God, the offspring stands sure. So he's got to tell those stories. Now, it's funny because a lot of us think that our relationships are super important. Um, that with our husbands and wives we're going to change the world for the better. And uh, when you read this chapter, you think, well, that's pretty cute because the fate of the world's blessing lies in the success of this story. The fate of the world's blessing lies in the fact, is Isaac going to get a bride or not? Because the world is depending on it. That's a lot of pressure. A lot of us think we're under a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. Um, is the servant, Abraham's servant, is he going to find a bride for Isaac? 
And then what's really at stake is, are the promises of God true? It's also interesting to note that alongside God's promises, there's also some instruction. So promises usually come with some added instruction. Um, It's been promised that Jesus Christ is the one who builds his church. And then you read through the New Testament letters and it tells you, the apostles are telling us, the church, kind of how to build the church. It gives some added instruction on how the church builds itself. And yet the promise is that Christ is the one who builds his church. The promises of God often come with instruction. Abraham says that Isaac's wife cannot come from the land of Canaan and that the servant must go back to Abraham's native land. And almost as a a side note, why can't Isaac's wife be from the land of Canaan? Um, It's hard to really know from Abraham's point of view, uh, but as you read the story, you go, he's a real stickler for it. Um, There was probably some appropriate cultural way of doing marriage that may not make as much sense to us. But it is easier to understand this story, not from Abraham's point of view, but from the point of view of the nation of Israel as they're looking back and reading this. Because God told Israel through Moses not to marry with the Canaanites or, or the other surrounding nations because through marriage the Israelites will not stand in their faithfulness to God. And, and that is what happened when you read the Old Testament. Many Israelites intermarried with the Canaanites and other countries and were influenced by their religious and spiritual practices. And so it's hard to make sense of, of why the wife couldn't be from the land of Canaan unless you look at the bigger picture from the point of view of Israel. And this is a type that follows through all of Scripture. And I suppose that God is using Abraham's practice of marriage to, um, as a foreshadow of how Israel is to conduct their marriages. And it even speaks to us today that God has uh, given us some extra instruction as Christians re- with regards to marriage. And uh, in the same vein as the Canaanites, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says the Christians can only marry other Christians. He uses the word in the Lord. And it's this exact same principle as Israel and Canaan and this uh, Isaac and this bride. It's the same principle. Uh, basically, it does not go well for you spiritually. But anyway, back to the passage. Uh, there's a promise from God that Isaac is the son who the blessing will come through. And the fate of the world's blessing lies in the success of him finding a bride. Abraham has sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac and has given him some further instruction. She's not to be from the land of Canaan, but from where Abraham came from. And the servant is not allowed to take Isaac back with him. So there's a promise and there's some added instruction to go with that promise. So in, in God's word, God has made some promises, and that is why we pray. Verse 10 of Genesis 24. The servant 
took ten of his master's camels. And with all kinds of his master's goods in hand, he went to Aram Naharam, to Nahor's town. At evening, the time when women went out to draw water, he made the camels kneel beside a well outside the town. Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I am standing here at the spring where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink, and who responds, drink, and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And so here is the section where Abraham's servant actually prays to God. It's a short prayer, uh, but it's not shallow. It's very specific, and it shows that the servant has put a lot of planning and thought into his actions. And of course, if the fate of the world's blessing lies in his success, then he definitely needs some prayer. So what is the servant up to in this passage? And, and really, what's with all the camels? Um, at first glance, it kind of looks like the servant's going the easy route. I'm going to rock up with all my camels. I'm going to rock up with all my bling, all my kinds of gifts. And this woman, she's not going to be able to resist. That's kind of what it looks like from the, from the outset. But then you hear his prayer, and you know it's different. He's not looking for a woman who's uh, the external, uh, but as we'll find out, he's looking for a woman of high moral character. He's also going to see that if she does something so out of the ordinary, that if she does it, it's going to be a sign from God that she is the one. And again, it shows her character. If this servant just asked for a drink, it'd be very normal and polite to just be like, all right, here's a drink. Especially in this culture, high value of hospitality. But the servant is going to go outside what's normal for humans and our behavior and practice. And his thinking is that God is able to override normal human behavior, and this is going to be a sign for me. My prayer will be answered. All he is going to ask for is a drink for himself, and then this very strange woman is going to volunteer to not only give him a drink, but water all of his camels. Now we'll, we'll get back to how this story plays out, uh, but first we'll talk about uh, our prayers and our plans. Because what we see with the servant is that he's got promises, the offspring, and he's got some extra instruction from Abraham, but he goes, he goes way beyond those two things. Um, he orchestrates this whole plan that doesn't contradict the promise and it doesn't contradict the instruction. And we often think, well, if, all these, if it's promised from God, why can't it just come into being? 
Why can't God just work out all these plans himself? Why, why is the servant planning out what God has promised? It kind of makes sense that if God is making these promises, he'll be the one making the plans. Now, the book of Genesis tells us something um, noteworthy about humanity, particularly with the first humans, Adam and Eve. And it tells us that they were made in the image of God as humans, as humanity. The image of God is the language of kings. Um, If a king conquered a land, what's one of the first things he does? Well, he's going to put up his statue, and that statue is going to be his image, and that's going to tell everyone in the land who this land belongs to. The king is represented to the land by his image. And this is really what it means to be humans made in the image of God. As image bearers, all humanity represents God to the world. And this is why sin is so heinous, so wrong, because it is ultimately treason against a king. Because the people are supposed to represent God have now turned their backs on him, and they're the images of God. And so Adam and Eve are this sort of template, this prototype of how humanity and God are to coexist together. We represent God by ruling and interacting with the world on his behalf, displaying his image in a way that points to him. And when we think about that, it means that if God has these promises, if God has these plans, if God's got these instructions, it's not strange for him to work through the people who are his image, the people who represent him, to fulfill his promises. So the plans that you have in your life uh, have a biblical and theological basis because of who you are as an image bearer of God. And so really the only question that remains after that is whether or not you, you put in your plans, you think about the promises of God and whether they have any influence on the plans that you make. This is where the servant is at. He has a promise. He has some instruction to go with that promise. And he's made a lot of planning that doesn't contradict the promise or the instruction. And then he kind of sits back and he looks at it all and he prays over all of it. God has made some promises. You have made some plans. And that is why you pray. Verse 15, Genesis 24. Before the servant had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, no man had been intimate with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her, and he said, Please let me have a little water from your jug. She replied, Drink, my lord. She quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him a drink. 
When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they have had enough to drink. She quickly emptied her jug into the trough and uh, hurried to the well again to draw water. She drew water for all his camels, while the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. Another translation says that the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey a success. You can see they're just like watching intensely. And so I mentioned earlier that this plan that the servant has is going to go beyond normal human behavior. And in that way, it will be a sign from God that she is the one. And also the plan he's thought up reveals her as a person. It reveals, it reveals her physical strength. Uh, perhaps the servant knows the lifestyle of Abraham. He's a servant. He knows the lifestyle of Isaac. And he goes, I'm going to need a physically strong woman. And so Rebecca, she volunteers to draw water for the camels until they've had enough to drink. Now to to grasp the magnitude of this act, we've got to go through some facts. A camel can drink up to about 95 litres of water. Uh, her jar holds about 11 litres of water. And so she's got to go down a few steps, maybe several steps, into the well and back up again in order to keep watering the camels until they've had enough to drink. And not just one camel, but ten camels. It takes about ten minutes for one camel to drink this amount of water. And uh, basically one person figured out that it will take her about one and a half to two hours to actually complete uh, the act. And it says in the text that the servant is gazing at her in silence to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. Now you, you could probably think, well, she's been going at it for like a half an hour, hour. She's probably the one, but I'm sure he was sticking to his plan. I imagine he would also seem pretty rude to her, maybe. But again, this is going above normal human behavior. It goes above the norm because it reveals the power of God to cause people to override how the world normally works. This is what the servant prayed for. This is what he planned. And this reveals to us uh, an amazing uh, principle about prayer, which is that when you pray, you watch the world very differently. Uh, when you pray, you watch the world differently. Because when you pray, you have the chance to see firsthand the power of God that's at work. And the reason why you see it is because you're watching for it. And if you don't pray, sometimes you don't watch for it. You could be like this servant. You could, you could be staring at the world and silenced intensely and amazed that God is so mighty in his actions that he can bring about what you've prayed for which is in, a, in accordance with the things that he has promised. 
And I, I think without prayer, you don't necessarily see this. And you definitely don't see it to the degree that you see it when you do pray. You stare at the world in silence because you're amazed by the power of God that's at work right in front of you. Uh, now, some of you might be familiar with Glenelg. They have an op shop, one again. Some of you may have volunteered there, I'm not sure. But suppose you were volunteering down at one again, or perhaps your workplace has uh, uh, lots of people coming through and you interact with people on a daily basis. And you might say something to God like this. You know God. You said, uh, you promised that all people are going to bow down before you. Every nation. Every tribe. Every tongue. You promised this. I would really like to see some more nations come through those doors at my workplace, at my local shop, local cafe. And perhaps you could help me to step out and share about my life with you. Because after all, that is what you promised. That might be one way to pray the promises of God. Because this is a story about the power of God in his providence and the ability that prayer has to open our eyes to what God is doing, sometimes directly right in front of us. It's an amazing story of providence when you consider everything that's happening. Uh, Rebecca, she likely she likely left her house before the servant even prayed to God. And there's this sense in the passage that where you can see the servant is orchestrating his events, but you can see God orchestrating his events. And he's doing all of this, and then it leads up to this uh, incredible moment. She leaves the house to come to the well, and then before the servant finishes praying, uh, the text literally says, Behold, there was Rebecca. So there is power. You have a God of power. God has promises. You have plans. And God is powerful, particularly in his providence, in the way he orchestrates the world. And sometimes he'll, he'll bring it all together and you get to watch it. And this is why you pray. Genesis 24, verse 22. As the camels finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and for her wrist two bracelets weighing ten shekels of gold. Whose daughter are you? He asked. Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She also said to him, we have plenty of straw and feed and a place to spend the night. Then the man knelt low and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house 
of my master's relatives. Now there's still more to the story. This is about verse 27. I'm pretty sure it goes up to almost 70 verses. And I encourage you to go read the whole chapter. But for our purposes, this is where we'll end. God is, God is faithful to himself and all the things that he has said. All the promises that he has made. And God is faithful to you. We have to remember that this story is in Genesis, first book of the Bible. And there's a sense that this is uh, first book of the Bible, God is introducing himself to the world that he's created. These guys here, they don't know all the things that we've come to know about God. They don't know that Jesus Christ is going to be that blessing that comes from the family tree of Abraham. And so this question about whether God is going to be faithful to his promise is actually a really good question for them. And the answer comes back, comes back in this story, comes back in other stories of Genesis, keeps coming back through all of Scripture, that God, yes, God is faithful to his promise. And because God is faithful to his promise, we have the ability... Uh, to pray those things over our lives. Some of the prayers in Scripture are very bold. Uh, some people may even think that they're almost irreverent. Sometimes people just pray to God and they, they just state back his promises. And they go, well, if this is really true, I'd like to see it. And that's pretty bold. Um, but the promises of God, he's so faithful, we can be bold. His promises involve his people. Abraham is one of God's people. You are one of God's people. And the text says this, Blessed be the Lord who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from Abraham. We often think about our faithfulness to God. We say, do you have faith in God? Yes. Um, I have faith in God. Are you faithful to God? Yes. I try to be faithful to God. But this passage switches the faithfulness. God is the one who is faithful to Abraham. He's not with, he hasn't withheld his faithfulness and kindness. And you are faithful to God, but God is also faithful to you. So why don't you pray? Well, it could be because you don't see yourself as representing God to the world, as his image. Why don't you pray? Perhaps it's because um, you don't know the promises of God. Or maybe you, you do know them, but you don't know if you believe them. Why don't you pray? Sadly, it might be because you have no plans for your life. Or maybe uh, your plans don't consider the promises and instructions of God. So you might pray to God asking for his blessing over your plans and don't even realize that what you've planned and what God has promised and instructed don't really go together at all. Why don't you pray? Uh, 
Perhaps it's because you believe in a God who doesn't have power. Or maybe he does have power, but he keeps it to himself. He's limiting himself, and we're the ones who have power. Perhaps it's because you believe in a God who is powerless. But God has power, and he rules and orchestrates the world by his power. And as we've seen in this story, sometimes his power in ruling the world and your prayers and your plans, they fall directly in line. And uh, again, when you pray, it gives you the ability to see those things actually come together. You'll only pray these types of prayers. The servant of Abraham was only going to pray this prayer if he believed that God had power. Why don't you pray? Perhaps it's because even though you think of yourself as faithful to God, um, you have doubts about whether God is faithful to you. And so why do we pray? Why do we pray? Because we are image bearers. Help me to represent you well, Lord. Why do we pray? Because we have many promises. Scripture is full of promises. We're to believe them and pray them over our lives. Why do we pray? Uh, Because we have our plans. Particularly at the start of the year, January, we've got our plans for the year. God has given you the ability to make a plan for your life. He's given us some promises, and uh, he's given us some instruction, but we're just like the servant. God has given us a lot of wiggle room between those two things, to plan out our actions and to plan out our lives. You know, God has not fixed the Christian life to look like just one way or two ways. The promises of God and the instructions of God are so, I guess, unique and creative that they can be planned out in many different ways. After you consider God's promises and after you consider God's instructions, um, what are you then going to plan out for your life? And uh, remember, just like the servant, there's a lot of space to plan. Right? The, God didn't bring up camels. The servant came up with that idea. We have a lot of space to plan. Why do we pray? Because we have a God of power who rules in his providence. If we want to know that God is at work, we will have to pray. And dangerously, the only alternative that we have is to assume that God is up to something without really knowing if he is, which is dangerous. A person might spend their whole life assuming that uh, God is doing this thing and it's, it's leading them to this, down this path and they're interpreting all the things that are happening around them as if God was validating all those things and actions and thoughts, but maybe he's not. And you don't know that because you're not praying to him in a way that opens up your eyes 
like the servant, Abraham's servant. His eyes were open. He was ready to see what God is actually doing in the world around him. So if you don't pray, there will be no certainty of his power. But if you pray, you will then be on the lookout for his power. And you will recognize it when it appears. Why do we pray? Because we have a God who is faithful to himself and the things that he has spoken. And we have a God who incredibly is faithful to us because he is kind. I'll end with this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. As God is faithful, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in Christ. Therefore, through Christ, we also say amen to the glory of God. Let me pray for us as a church. Uh, Heavenly Father, one of your uh, promises in Scripture, I believe it's in James, is that uh, you have promised that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And so... God, uh, this is what we're here for as a church. Um, Every Sunday, we draw near to you. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would imprint this sermon into our hearts, that you would, uh, the things that are helpful for us, especially, you will will shine your light on them so that we can live um, according to your promises and instructions. And we can live in a way that is creative and free. Um, We ask these things in your name. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.